Welcome to NoSpinHomilies.com. I invite you to join me to reflect upon the homilies of Father Dan. Father Dan will challenge us to open our heart, mind, and soul to the Word of God. Father Dan will draw upon sacred scripture along with art, literature, and the lives of the saints to help us grow in our love and knowledge of the scripture. In doing so, we can become the living Word of God in this world. Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. What motivates you to practice your faith? What motivates you to come to Mass every week, pray every day, engage a lifestyle of stewardship? For some people, it's fear. They were brought up that way. They feared God and they feared damnation if for some reason they weren't going to Mass, they weren't practicing their faith. For some people, their motivation to practice their faith is love. They truly love the Eucharist, they love the sacraments, the church history, our doctrine, and our dogma. For other people, their motivation to practice their faith, they feel a sense of fulfillment and purpose in life, especially in working regarding human concerns and social justice issues. They feel like they are making a difference through their work in the church. For other people, they feel a sense of, this is my home. This is where I belong. This parish is my spiritual home, and therefore I want to do whatever I can to make my parish grow and be successful. Well, all three scripture readings for this weekend, they speak to us about the aspects of our faith. In the first reading from Exodus, it deals with the danger of people who lack faith. In the gospel, Jesus tells us what is required of us to have faith in him. Finally, in the second reading, Paul emphasizes the importance of practicing our faith. Now, go to the first reading from Exodus. Here we have the Israelites wandering in the desert. Now, they're living as nomads. From the human perspective, one can understand the mindset of the people. They have been led into the desert by God, and now they find nothing's there. There's no food, there's no water, there's no shelter, there's absolutely nothing. Here is an entire nation is in such a desperate situation, one could expect them not to wait patiently for a miracle. And with that in mind, that begins the very start of the first reading. As the people say to God, Would you have died at the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt as we sat by our flesh pots and ate our fill of bread? But you had to lead us into this desert to make the whole community die of famine. Now, this is a very powerful moment in the history of Israel. You could say it's a watershed moment. The Israelites right now are desperate, and they're on the verge of revolt and revolting against God. Now, again, we have to appreciate the context in which this reading is set in. The Israelite people, the nation, has been liberated from their slavery in Egypt by God. They have crossed the Red Sea, and now they're safe and free. God literally saved them, saved their lives, and yet now the Israelites are complaining because of their lack of faith. They believe that God led them into to the desert only to die. Worse yet, they begin to regret leaving Egypt and following God. Their mindset was one of, granted, yes, 
we were living as slaves to the Egyptians, but at least we had food and water and shelter. Well, because of the Israelites' lack of faith, they appear to be like ungrateful children. They take God's love and care and the miracle he, by freeing them from the Egyptians for granted. And in doing so, they start complaining when things don't go their way. Now, notice God's response. Does he become angry, frustrated with them? No, not at all. In fact, just the opposite. God said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them in the evening twilight you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread, so that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Now, when you stop and think, good parents know that maturing is slow. It's a slow process for a child. And yet parents patiently and diligently, they keep working with that child so that that child does mature on their way to adulthood. What's required of the parents? You know, the virtuous life, patience, prudence, charity, compassion, forgiveness. Now, take that analogy and apply it to God and the Israelites. God knows the Israelites are in need to continue to mature in their faith and their trust in God. A mature faith would trust that God provides for all of our needs. Well, here's the first lesson for us all. Growing towards a mature faith and a maturity in our relationship with Christ is a lifelong process. It's not something that happens overnight. As long as we are a pilgrim church wandering in the desert of life, and we are, we must be working hard to attain maturity of faith. The key is we have to take personal responsibility for growing our faith. That's one of the problems that the Israelites don't have right now, and they will learn to do that later on. The Israelites essentially believe that they just have to show up and God will provide everything for them. Well, that's not true. When you think about any relationship, whether it's friendship, whether it's a marriage, or even a relationship with Jesus Christ, it takes work from both parties in order for them to nurture and cultivate that friendship or marriage or relationship with Christ. It takes work, day in and day out. Therefore, we have to take personal responsibility by coming to Mass every week, praying every day, growing in the knowledge of our faith, engaging in a lifestyle of stewardship in which we share the gifts that God has given us with others, especially our faith community. See, then we attain spiritual maturity. And so, back into the story, God does provide for the people. He gives them manna in the morning and quail in the evening. Now, what's interesting about this manna, it couldn't be stored. It melted away later on in the morning. Symbolically speaking, if the Israelites were able to store up a reserve of food, they would no longer depend upon God. And yet, that can't be, for them or for us. Therefore, every day the Israelites must depend upon God for sheer survival and life itself. See, this is the relationship that God wants with us, a relationship based upon life. God gives the Israelites food and sustains their lives. Later on, the Israelites, will, in return, will offer God lives of faith, which is all he wants from us. And so the same thing holds true for us. God wants nothing more than to have a relationship based upon life with us, whereby God offers us life, and not just life in this world, but in the world to come. Therefore, we offer God back 
lives of faith. We recognize God is the author of our life, especially eternal life. We are dependent upon God for life itself, just like the Israelites. Therefore, our natural response is to offer God lives of faith. And when we do that, what does God do? He takes our faith lives, he blesses them, and matures them. Now, you may ask, okay, how do we offer our lives of faith back to God? Well, whenever you come to Mass. You know, I've said at the homily last week, whenever you come to Mass, you are literally and spiritually offering yourself over to God. Why? Because when you come to Mass, you're making a choice to offer yourself over to God. Now, many of us could easily go someplace else. We could take a walk in the park. We could be shopping. We could be traveling. We could be just sitting home watching TV. But we choose to come to Mass. And in doing so, we are literally and spiritually offering ourselves over to God, even if it's just for one hour. How else do we do it? Well, praying every day. That's another way we offer our faith lives over to God, heart, mind, and soul. Stewardship, we offer God and we share the many gifts that he has given us with others, especially our faith community. We also grow in lifelong faith formation. Faith won't grow if you don't want to know. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to teach us in the gospel. The gospel picks up exactly where we left off last week. Remember the gospel story last week? It's the feeding of the 5,000 through the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves. Well, Jesus has just left them and now has dispersed the crowd. And yet the crowds find Jesus again with the intention of being fed. But notice what Jesus says to the crowd. You are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Well, it begs the question, what is that food that perishes? Well, it's everything in this world. Everything in this world is passing. Fame, fortune, power, honor, notoriety. Jesus says, don't work for that. Don't make that the center of your life or the priority of your life. See, those things won't satisfy the deep desire we have for the divine in our life. Instead, Jesus says, work for food that won't perish. Well, what is that? What's the Eucharist? The Eucharist we will have for all of eternity. It's Jesus' body and blood. Prayer. Whether we are praying here in this world or we are praying in heaven, we are constantly praying, always interceding on behalf of others. Eternal life. See, these are all ways in which we work for food that won't perish. Notice at the very end of the gospel, Jesus says to the people, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Well, when we make Jesus Christ the center of our life, and we have, everything else in our life will fall into place. Our job, our friendships, our family, our hobbies, our activities, they will all fall in harmony around Christ. See, then our faith is mature, firm, and intact. One last thing. Turn in the second reading from St. Paul. St. Paul says, you must no longer live as Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles lived for this passing world. They were blind to the truth of the gospel. Consequently, their lives were ordered to or around worldly things, like fame and fortune and power and honor. Instead, Paul writes at the end, he says, put on the new self. Well, what is that new self? 
It's a life that is joined with Jesus Christ at the moment of our baptism. See, Paul talks about that a lot in his letters and again and again. He'll tell us, put on Christ, which means what? Renew your commitment to Jesus Christ, the commitment that we made at the time of our baptism. See, what we have to realize and remember, as part of the ritual of baptism, we received a baptismal garment. And it's a symbol of our life that is now joined with Jesus Christ, never to be separated ever again. And it gives us the promise of immortality to come. Therefore, we have to live lives ordered to Christ. See, now we're working for that food that doesn't perish, that Jesus is referring to in the gospel. Friends, today we recognize in all three of the readings, God is the author of life. And he wants nothing more to have a relationship of life with us, in which he gives us life, not just in this world, but more importantly, in the world to come. And in doing so, we are compelled to offer our faith lives over to God. And in doing so, every time we do so, God blesses that offering of our faith lives and our faith matures. And that's all that God wants from us. And may the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.